This is episode 33 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are Off-Grid Firewood, Lessons from Staying Warm with an Axe, Practical Preparedness, Simplify Your Shopping List, and because today is Wednesday, I have a great interview for you today uh, with Gay Levy of BackdoorSurvival.com and George Jure of UrbanSurvival.com. They're going to talk about uh, their preparedness and also their book, 11 Steps to Living a Strategic Life. I also have a freebie for you that I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, at the very end of this podcast or at the, at the end of the, uh, the interview. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, since we have such a great show today, let's go ahead and get started. Our first article comes to us from Survival Sherpa. My friend Todd over there has written an article, Off Good Firewood, Lessons from Staying Warm with an Axe. You know, a lot of people think that it's just it's, it's an easy deal to go out there and just chop wood. And, uh, you know, someone's going to do it right. I know that Todd's going to do it. But, uh, you know, he talks a little bit about his experiences here from chopping a whole, a whole cord of wood. So let's go ahead and start reading this one. Imagine having only one off-grid tool to heat your home. Would your family stay warm or freeze to death? Silly question, right? Only a lunatic would rely on one tool for firewood getting, especially with the antiquated axe. Call me crazy, but I chopped a full cord, 128 cubic feet, 4 by 4 by 8 of firewood with an axe. Here's why and a few things I learned in the process. I began Stephen Ed Holmes' Axe Cordwood Challenge on February 11th and finished a cord of axe cut firewood the last day of winter, March 19, 2017. I took the tech challenge to hone practical axe skills, which were commonly known and practiced by our woodsmen's, homesteaders, and pioneer ancestors. This was one of the most rewarding and satisfying journeys of self-reliance I've undertaken. Stacking that last stick of firewood made me pause to appreciate the journey more so than the finish line. In fact, finishing one cord actually whetted my appetite for another. Hey, I'm just going to stop right here. There are a lot of videos here. Todd takes a lot of videos and he uploads them to YouTube. And uh, there's a lot of links in here that you're going to want to check out. So definitely want to go check out the, the website uh, here. All right, continuing on. In the process of this challenge, I've compiled a fair amount of video footage documenting some axe skills and techniques. For those interested in video format, you can find these on our Axe Cordwood Challenge playlist. Another resource you may find a bit of value in is our Axemanship playlist. The only way to improve axemanship is to swing axes. Even with good technique and accuracy, your body is at risk from not only sharp steel, but falling timber and dead limbs being dislodged high overhead. There's no way to ensure safety 100%. You can, however, mitigate a large portion of the risk by using common sense. Even so, you have to accept the potential for injury. One tree I felled got hung up. To free it, I had to fell a smaller tree, 5 inches in diameter, under great tension. Misreading the direction in which the tree would release its tension, my last chop sent the tree into my thigh. Fortunately, another tree stopped the full impact. It could have been, I guess it's been, it could have been much worse than a bruised muscle. 
Even bent saplings as small as your wrist pose a huge danger to the woodchopper if cut without a strategy. Here's a video link demonstrating a safe method to release stored energy. I chose to cut a cord of wood at base camp. Not because I'm more pioneering than others who have undertaken this challenge. It's just that base camp is where the trees live and firewood hides in trees. In my off-grid setting, the greatest challenge in my mind was transporting large diameter logs on my shoulder over uneven terrain, vines, and ravines without a modern means of convenience. Or conveyance, I'm sorry. My strategy was to fell, buck, and split logs too heavy to lift for transport. To accomplish the plan with an axe only, I carved two sets of wedges, or gluts as Kiefer called them in Camping and Woodcraft, from a dogwood tree to be used at each felling site. Each set contained four wedges, fat set, a steep inclined plane skinny set, a gradual taper with less slope. Both were useful for different tasks. I found that the fat gluts inserted into smaller splits would bounce out after a couple of blows from my wooden maul or axe pole. The fast set, I'm sorry, fat set could be driven deep to separate stubborn logs after the skinny set opened the split wide enough to accept the fat wedges. The skinny wedges inserted in the initial axe split at the butt of logs performed beautifully to further the split down the logs, even on seasoned red oak. I found the one pine tree I cut to be the most cantankerous to half. You think a soft wood would split more easily than hard. However, once halved, the pine split into rails more easily with my axe without the aid of wedges, that is, if the log was not free. The dogwood wedges held up to a great amount of pounding even though they were green or non-seasoned. I had the idea to make a maul from the base of the dogwood tree which gave me the wedges. I discovered that dogwoods have a hollow space in the root ball which travels a foot or more up the trunk depending on the tree size. This fact makes the species unsuitable as a maul unless you cut the hollow part off. Hickory, oak, or other hardwoods have a solid root base and makes a fine maul for driving wedges. As my strategy dictated after hauling logs and rails back to base camp, further splitting and cutting to lengths was necessary. I made a chopping platform based on the one described in Dudley Cook's authoritative work, The Axe Book. Without a doubt, the chopping plant platform was the most used and multifunctional DIY tool throughout the challenge. Initially, I had planned on using it for chopping smaller rails to firewood length. It also served as a splitting and bucking platform. I experimented with bucking smaller logs, 5 to 6 inch diameters, on the platform instead of separating them into rails first. The platform offered a solid backup for vertical axe strokes swinging towards your feet when bucking. 80% of the wood was split into long rails and cut to length on the chopping platform. In case you're not aware, axe cut wood will not stand on end for splitting. The remaining 20% was bucked to length on the platform, tossed on the ground, and split using the tiger technique. Look at the video link. This method worked well on all clear grained wood. When knots were present, I learned quickly to lay the round on the chopping platform to split. The first human I witnessed felling a tree with an axe was Mama. With that moment etched in my five-year-old mind, I was hooked on axes. The axe swing is a basic physical movement. However, proper technique employed efficiently saves energy and time. 
A tenderfoot, unfamiliar with technique, gnaws into a tree with a flurry of misdirected chops and slashes until the tree submits or he gives up. The wood chips produced are as fine as flower bed mulch. The supercomputer in our school coordinates with our muscles to strike where our eyes look. I'm not saying that you don't need repetition to develop muscle memory. You certainly do. Practice makes perfect, not perfect. I'm sorry. Practice makes permanent, not perfect. Let me say that one again because that's a good instructional uh, understanding there. Practice makes permanent, not perfect. Every stroke is made under control. Muscle up on swings and accuracy suffers. Use your natural swing and let the tool do its share of the work. When felling, the least practice skill due to the low number of trees needed to produce a cord of wood, a pattern of overlapping strikes is followed for both the face and back notch. A small notch is created at the base for larger notches. With the small notch complete, large wood chips are freed more easily as you progress. A slight twist of the axe after each stroke helps to loosen and remove chips on the top and bottom cuts of the notch. Repeat this blueprint until you near the center of the tree. Do the same 45 degrees notching techniques on the back cut. My axe placement dramatically improved over the course of the challenge. Cleaner notches and felling and bucking were evident with more purposeful practice. One tip I'd offer in bucking is to swing the axe through a line vertical with your nose as your eyes focus on the target. As my accuracy grew, I concentrated on cocking the axe handle with my wrist at the peak of my backswing before the downward stroke. This seemed to increase the velocity of the axe head. Accuracy and velocity equate to more work done with less effort. Early in my teaching career, I was the sage on the stage, dishing out book information and theory. As I grow gray, I've come to realize that lessons last when students are given the opportunity to learn by doing the stuff. Building knowledge through experience makes math relevant in the real world. This is even more true with axemanship and self-reliance skills. Remove electricity in the combustion engine from the firewood equation and suddenly the axe becomes relevant. Modern tools which I own can get the job done more quickly, but I needed to experience in context what it takes to cut a cord with an axe only. By doing the stuff, opportunities and learning took place. Emergent skills were honed. Unpredictable situations improved learning. Reflected on consequences, mistakes, and successes. Improved woodland management. I could indeed keep my family warm with an axe. In full disclosure, a buck saw was used for one back cut on the last tree felled. My buddy Kevin came out for about an hour and cut the face notch. A large wild azalea, which I refused to cut, prevented safe axe work on the back cut. This was the only time a tool other than an axe was used. Keep doing the stuff of self-reliance. All right, great article there and something that you don't always think about. You know, we got those weekend warriors and even like when I go up to the country to my dad's place, we don't do too much with axes, but, you know, we have. And, uh, you know, the technique, I'm sure, is, is suffers greatly uh, because you're not doing it on a regular basis. So I really like uh, Todd doing this, this article here. I really uh, want to impress on you that you want to go check out the videos. I mean, they've got great videos. He shows you what he's doing. He's got uh, videos of the malls uh, for you know the wedges, uh, the mall and the wedges that he uses for splitting, and so a lot of good work there. All right, all right. So uh, let me go ahead and jump into this this interview. I'm very excited. Gay uh, Gay Levy over at Backdoor Survival has been 
a very good friend of mine throughout the years. She started, I've talked about her before. Uh, I have, um, you know, I was looking at her website. I mean, she started her website a little bit before I started Prepper website, but I always go and visit it and link to a lot of her articles. Um, I mean, she just does great. And when you, when you look at her articles, uh, you see the pictures there. You see her in the midst of doing whatever it is. So if it's the the pull shock article that was kind of popular, uh, and I and I talked about that here not too long ago, or if it's uh, the one making the salve, uh, like I talked about, my friends at church were talking about it. Uh, you see her in the picture, and she's in the mix of it, doing it, doing it herself, so that she can accurately tell you what works and what doesn't work. And so George uh, Ure of, of UrbanSurvival.com, I followed his work for a while. Uh, UrbanSurvival.com isn't an urban survival as we would think of in, in preparedness uh, or at least in, in survival. It's uh, a financial a financial website and a lot of good analysis there. Now George does talk about... Um, he does talk about preparedness on there, and I love to read those articles when he talks about preparedness. I like uh, reading his insight. But, uh, you know, both George and, and Gay are, are good friends, and they got together to write this book. And uh, I, I did a review on the book a while back. I thought it was a great book. Uh, doing this podcast, I really wanted to hear from them and uh, talk a little bit about this book. So uh, it was. it's kind of... Uh, most of the time when I'm doing an author interview, there's a certain set of questions, but I was able to bring in other questions because of their background and preparedness. So I'm really excited. So I have questions I'm going to. This is a written interview for those of you who've never experienced this before. I do my podcast late at night, so I don't have the opportunity to record or interview people. Um, and that's just kind of the way it is. And I kind of wanted to keep with the same format of uh, reading, uh, like I read the other articles. Sometimes if there is someone who does a podcast, I'm going to have another interview here for you pretty soon. And, and that person does, that couple does do a podcast. So they're able to record the answers and then send them my way. But, uh, uh, you know, that happens every once in a while. And, and that's great too. I love being able to, to do that. The, the thing that's going to suck about this interview is that I'm not going to be able to ask follow-up questions, right? So, uh, you know, one of the things you might want to do is... If you have a question that you'd like to ask, maybe come over to uh, episode 33 show notes. Leave a, a message in the comment for George or Gay. Maybe you know I can get them to come over and, and answer that. I I know they're they're very uh, they're great about that and and they're they're good people. So I know that uh, they can they'd come over and, and at least email me a response so that I can put it up there. So let's go ahead and get into this one. Uh, this is again we're looking at specifically their book, 11 Steps to Living a Strategic Life. A Guide to Survival During Uncertain Times. And again, you want to hang on because I've got something cool for you here at the end of this interview. So let's go ahead and get started. First question. Tell us a little about yourself and your preparedness. Please include why you started prepping. So Gay will go first in the interview and then George. I get asked this so often that my tendency is to roll out some boilerplate and repeat myself again and again. That said, so much has changed since 2010 when I started prepping that I am going to respond a bit differently. But first, a little, a little bit about me. My home for most of my life has been Washington State. Although I grew up in the Seattle area, I eventually moved to the San Juan Islands. More recently, I have moved to Arizona where natural disasters are rare and the sunshine is a welcomed respite for gloomy Pacific Northwest winters. 
My motivation to begin prepping stemmed from being offshore and isolated from first responders in the event of an earthquake or terrorist attack in the Puget Sound area. In the beginning, I was also concerned about a total global financial collapse. These days, my outlook has softened only in that I believe the collapse will be so gradual that the deterioration in our way of life will simply be the way it is. It is my opinion that those of us that are preppers will be better equipped to handle a major collapse in the economy and the subsequent change to or our standard of living. George, I became a prepper back when I was a big city news director. There were simply too many people I was interviewing who were forecasting doom and gloom, and some of them have proven to be right over the longer term, especially those who forecast a collapse of the housing market. In the 1990s, I decided to move into a sailboat, so by the year 2000, that was Y2K, I was reading to pull up stakes, or maybe that was ready, ready to pull up stakes and head literally anywhere in the world with no more than time to top off our water tank. My wife and I lived in San Francisco for a while and then San Diego on the boat, but after a time became bored with boating, so we moved to the East Coast, Boca Raton, Florida. Eventually, we decided on 29 acres in East Texas for a number of reasons. Cheap land, lots of tall pines, plenty of water, and best of all, incredibly low property taxes. Since that time, we've remained prepped as much out of practicality as paranoia. When you live half an hour from a gas station, you just naturally store not only food, but gasoline, hardware, parts for the tractor, a whole range of items. My wife and I have a newfound respect for rural America as a result because while some of the values out here in flyover country might not make sense at the shopping mall, they are just practical matters of adapting to the real rugged East Texas outback. Next question. What specifically about your personal preparedness are you most proud of? Gay. Two things. I can and have gone for weeks without a single visit to a grocery store or other commercial establishment. I have plenty of food, water, amusements, and other comforts to survive a long time on my own. I actually enjoy, in which may sound weird, but then I have always been a bit quirky. LOL. Second, and this is a bit self-serving, is that I am proud of my efforts to help educate the world without inciting fear. I still believe in prepping with optimism because, after all, this is our life and we must live it in the best we can. Good answer. All right, uh, George. For me, it's skills and solar. I was raised in a family of firefighters, so it was a given that I'd not only know every tool known to man, at least most of them, but I'd also know how to use them and, if necessary, repair or improvise them. I've got a low-level project going in in background to try and get industrial arts back into American schools again so people can learn the hands-on aspect of creating their futures with their own hands. I know, uh, just side note, I know that that just speaks to a lot of us, right, in the preparedness community. All right, continuing on. The solar part is the joy of designing and building my own 3.5 kilowatt grid interactive solar system before such things were popular and when they were much more expensive in 2008. The system powers the office, and what doesn't get used by us is sold back to the local power co-op. Because we're a, a co-generation site, sorry, I am dead set against punitive connect, connect charges and some of the other monopolistic practices of big utilities which are managing budgets, um, not resources. 
All right. Uh, next question. Tell us about your book. What is it about and why did you decide to write it? Gay. The seeds of the book were derived from an article I had written on backdoor survival. At that time, I believe there were 10 steps. And my readers know George and I have been friends since we were in our 20s. And when he was coming to visit, I suggested we knock out a book that expanded upon those 10 steps with more details. The result was 11 Steps to Living a Strategic Life, a guide to survival during uncertain times. Both the world of prepping and the world of self-publishing have changed drastically since that book was published and both George and I feel it is a bit long in the tooth. When he comes to visit this summer, we plan to knock out a new book that will expand upon the concept of living a strategic life. George, I think Gay has summarized perfectly. I had written an ebook that was very successful called How to Live on 10000 a Year or Less. Readers loved that but wanted more. Since my training is finance, I really like the idea of a book that would get out of the accounting mode and which would let us step back and talk about the theory of living smart. 11 Steps to Living a Strategic Life was a wonderful platform for us to test collaborating and, as you'd expect when writing with a longtime friend, it just simply flowed. What part of your book would you like to make sure that readers pay careful attention to? Gay. More than anything, I hope that the takeaway is that being prepared is a lifestyle choice without hard and fast rules. We all need to define our personal goals, then pursue them with gusto while continuing to live abundantly. I realize my response is a bit, a bit touchy-feely, but heck, that is the type of person I am. George, not so touchy-feely on my part. I'm much more process-oriented. I think people should shop their lifestyle just like you go out looking for furniture for your home. There are a lot of inexpensive things you can buy or adopt, but in the end, you get what you pay for to some extent in life. Gay's right on defining personal goals, but I'm the kind of guy who likes to model out the cost of one lifestyle choice versus another in a spreadsheet. Could you paste in a paragraph from your book that gives a good feel for what readers will experience? This is Gay's paragraph. Living strategically by our own definition means living a life full of abundant adventure while embracing the tenets of simplicity and sustainability. It means being healthy and reaping the benefits of bounteous friendships and caring relationships. It means living a life full of happiness and readiness without the burden of wanting to be someone else or someplace else. It means liking yourself and moving forward with the business of life with animated spirit and optimism. This all sounds like lofty stuff, but when you get right down to it, we think we have been preparing for this moment for a long time. Living strategically means being self-sufficient and being self-reliant. It means being prepared for life in these uncertain times. And this is George's paragraph here. The only real business equation you need ever learn is that if you spend less than you make, you will always be well off. It seems almost childish to say this, but if you can pay cash for anything, it is a good idea to do so. There are plenty of reasons why. 1. If you pay cash, your ownership is generally unencumbered. This means that you own something outright and no one can take it away from you without breaking the law. One exception here is that the government can seize property for non-payment of taxes. 2. If you pay cash, you don't pay interest charges. Even though real estate loans are at record low levels of interest, there are still credit card outfits which gouge people at 21% and higher at a time when there are borrowing at the Fed discount window for less than 
Oh sure, they whine about non-payments, charge off rates and other items, but in the end, they're gouging. You don't have to contribute to their greed, and that's the power paying cash offers. Three, you don't have to work. We, count, count, we can't count the number of people we've run into who have to work or face bankruptcy, and some multiple times. If you don't have cash and can get even a small home with modest utilities and taxes and save something up to provide a few years of cushion, you can take off work for extended periods of time. You stop being a wage slave. Good quotes there. What else would you want preppers to know about your book? Gay. I believe I have covered this in my response to the previous two questions. George, do you have something to add? George's answer. Maybe just that people don't really exercise as much power and control in their lives as they can. Gay and I have lived in lots of different places, so whatever you do, don't put down roots and figure you'll spend a lifetime in one place. Like the airline commercial says, you're free to move around the country. Do you have any upcoming projects that listeners might be interested in? Gay. The big news on my horizon is the relaunch of the Strategic Living website at www.strategic-living.net. And just uh, FYI there, I will go ahead. I will put a link to all of these uh, links on the show notes. Uh, these There currently is not a lot of content, just two articles actually, but I expect you will see more added in the very near future. I hope your listeners will visit the site, and if they like what they see, will sign up to receive updates by email. In addition, they can check out the Facebook page at facebook.com slash strategiclivingblog. George's answer. I'll be launching a Bring Back Industrial Arts website, which will focus on how each of us can become a Renaissance man or woman. And shortly, a new book I've done, The Millennial's Missing Manual, should get up on Amazon. I did that as a series on the urbansurvival.com website. And one of these days, Gay and I have plans for a new book, but more on that down the road a piece. Do you have any final words that you would like to pass on to the Prepper Website podcast listeners? Gay, regardless of where you are on your journey or self-reliance, be proud of what you have done so far. Don't get discouraged. Do what you can. And please, do prep with optimism that life will go on no matter what. George, I'd echo that and say you can never be overprepared. Not that we are doom porn promoters of EMP and taking down the internet and all that, but even digging up a buried piece of fiber optic cable can literally terminate the life of some people who have not gotten ahead of the future, so to speak. How can interested preppers connect with you? Links, social media, etc. Gay. The best place to find me are on my websites, of course, plus Facebook and Pinterest. I do post to Twitter, but am not very active. So again, Facebook is facebook.com, the survival woman. Then you have Pinterest slash the survival woman and twitter.com slash survival woman. Again, I'm going to put links to all of these in the show notes. George uh, says, drop by the urbansurvival.com website and toss a comment into the discussion there. All right. A lot of good information. Great, uh, great interview. I appreciate them taking the time. You know, it's one thing when you get to just, you know, talk your interview through. Uh, you know, I've, I've done some of those. So I know it just you get on the you, you get on the mic or you get on the Internet, you get on the phone and you're able to do that. It's another thing when you're typing all these out. So I really appreciate uh, George and Gay taking the time to type out their answers and working working through these questions. Um, they they've got a gift for you. They wanted to you know be a blessing to the audience out there. 
And so their their book is on Amazon, 11 Steps to Living a Strategic Life, A Guide to Survival During Uncertain Times. And so for a, a short amount of time, about five days, starting on Wednesday midnight, uh, so uh, I, I record these on Tuesday. I say that on a regular basis. I record, I'm recording this on Tuesday night, and so we'll, uh, we'll release it late, late Tuesday night, like 10, 11 o'clock. And then so an hour later, two hours later, uh, their book will go on free on Amazon. And so you can download it for about five days. Uh, you'll be able to download it there and uh, get a copy of it. And so, like I said, it's a great book. I think it's it's one that you should be reading. I think it's encouraging. Uh, I've done I've read it before. I've done a, a book review on it. And so you get that free for listening and being a part of the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. So so uh, so glad that they're able to de- to do that. I really appreciate that. And if you get a chance, you know, stop by their their website or you know their social media and drop them a line. And let them know that you're thankful for being able to download their their ebook, um, you know, from Amazon free. All right, so I will have links to all of that, all the websites, all the social media, and also to Amazon where you can go get their book uh, for free. I will have that on the episode 33 show notes. All right, so again, great interview. Thank you so much, Gay and George. All right, so moving right along, we'll get to our last article here. This article comes to us from theprepperjournal.com, and this article is called Practical Preparedness, Simplify Your Shopping List. All right, here we go. When we embark on the road of preparedness, whether we aim small or plan to survive a nuclear holocaust, there are a million and five things to learn, build, do, and buy. It can be overwhelming at every stage. In fact, it can almost be more overwhelming at some of the intermediate stages than early on. You have great piles of stuff, but then you start thinking longer term. Sustainability, self-sufficiency, and the needs once just balloon all over. In some cases, the financial aspect alone is such a burden that people fall out and let go of the preparedness bug. One thing that can help is to simplify the shopping list. In some cases, it's about paring it down. In other cases, it's about finding multi-purpose items. The major benefit of the latter is that it can simplify things for beginners and old hands alike. When we pick something that can do multiple jobs right now, it gives us the ability to later expand to more specialized items as we're ready. I'll mostly focus on those items. I'll also touch on some items I commonly see stocked deep that can get reduced or eliminated. Pine cleaner and dish detergent. Pine salt is proof of a higher being or mother nature that loves us. Pine cleaner can be just about all things. It's a disinfectant and it doesn't create color changes in fabric or wood. As such, pine cleaner can be used for floors like tile, linoleum, hardwood, and carpet, laundry, electric heat washers to hand scrubbing, toilets and bathrooms, kitchen and butcher area services, vehicles, dusting services with rags, and bedding. Happily, it also comes in a whole variety of scents, for those of us who don't actually like lemon or pine scented cleaners. Pine Cleaner also has a major case for being the be-all number one cleaning product because it can be had in super condensed forms that you dilute as much as 10 to 1 and 25 to 1 by purpose. Dish detergent is another one that can do a lot of jobs. As a pet owner and cook, little breaks and grease around the stove hood or sicknesses stains in carpets the way dish detergents will, and usually, especially with hot water and a decent scrubby sponge or brush. 
with the least amount of elbow grease of anything else I've purchased. This is the stuff we count on to kill the raw chicken germs on our cutting boards and knives and to prep jars for another year of canning. It's fine as a surface cleaner for nurseries, kitchens, and sick rooms. Don gets counted on to work pants from whatever my father and I picked up through the day. The incredible oil-breaking compounds also save critters after oil spills. While it will upset the micro communities, Dawn is safe to use for potted plants and garden beds, which let us reuse the water we've pulled for cleaning and laundry. Just a side note, whenever you, whenever you get, um, and I'll be writing an article about this here recently, something that I used organically uh, out in the garden that, that seems to be working, uh, whenever you read anything about needing to use soap or detergent, you always want to use Dawn. Dawn seems to be uh, the best one for that. So I second that, what she's talking about there. All right, continuing on, bleach. Bleach has its place in the cleaning world and in preparedness, but usually in limited quantity. Plain, unscented bleach gets used five to eight drops per gallon to help clean water for drinking. A single bottle will do hundreds or thousands of gallons of water. However, that bleach has a shelf life, and the more unstable the temperature, the faster it breaks down and loses its ability. Bonus fact. When you use bleach in hot water, you're nullifying its purification abilities. It'll brighten whites, but it's the hot water killing germs in those cases. Since you can wash anything in pine saw that you could in bleach and get it sanitized to the same degree, consider keeping a little round for water supplies and cool water post-wash uh, dips for food service or sick room supplies, but you don't really need a gallon a week or even a gallon a month. All right, again, I'm going to refer back to also Gay's, uh, Gay Levy's uh, article on, on using pool shock as well. All right, continuing on. Vinegar and Windex. Instead of stocking up on both window cleaner and vinegar, consider just going with vinegar. And if you're not yet, give your windows and bathrooms bright work a scrub down using sheets of newspaper or phone book pages instead of paper towels next time. Vinegar can be used full strength if needed or diluted and combined in various ways for doing windows and mirrors. It can also be used to unclog shower heads, remove water spots, kill ants, deodorize drains, or change the smell coming from them. Anyway and act as a fabric softener in laundry water. And of course, there's the fact that we can use white vinegar for canning and cooking, something we'd never do with a window cleaner. Windshield glass cleaner. If you do want to have and stockpile a separate specific window cleaner, consider getting the tabs and concentrate packets that fuel stations use for restocking their squeegee buckets, such as Quick Blue 303 or Bug Blitzer. They dissolve in even cool water, then can be transferred to a spray bottle for cleaning. They can cost pennies per gallon while storing very compactly. Yeah, I got to tell you, I didn't know that about those uh, those various um, those various dissolvable uh, packets there. So that's something new there. All right, baking soda and Epsom salt. Baking soda had its own article as a prepper must-have item. Both were also mentioned in some of the barter articles. Between them, they do a lot of jobs in and on the body, in and around the home, out in the yard and garden, and on the road. I could hardly write an article about do-it-all shopping and not include them, but they truly deserve 6 to 12 articles of their own. So once again, there's, a, there's links all throughout this article that you want to check out. All right, standard and common ammo firearms. As much as possible, I try to standardize at least ammunition if not actual firearms. I also try to pick up long production run and common firearms. 
Doing so means increased aftermarket parts and accessories at more affordable rates. That allows us to use a step-up program. I can buy a basic firearm, then a different extra barrel or stock. I can upgrade as I'm able using the reviews that abound for the more common firearms, accessories, and gears. Being a freak, I also tend to take both magazines cost into account, as well as the variety of pouches and holsters with and without a rail light system and or the sling systems available for the firearms. So there's a graphic here of it with a Glock and then all the different uh, Glock magazines that you can get and then how many shots they hold or how many rounds they hold. And then sometimes I pick a firearm be because it has a wide range of magazines it will accept and opposed to one that only takes its specific model or the HKAR HK models that is ever so slightly different and is thus restricted to HK mags made just for it. The same applies to ammo. Brimfires like the 1022 that aren't picky about what type of ammo they get fed are also more likely to come home with me. By sticking with common calibers, I can readily find an affordable round that shoots just like my preferred self in home defense ammo for practice. In some cases, it means I have a wider array of hunting defense and special purpose rounds and or bullets ready and waiting for me on the shelf. Having commonly used calibers also means that there is a better chance, even if somebody can't use my magazine or stripper clip, they can reload theirs from mine if need be. Bedding and clothes. Cheat on your bed linens. If there's a queen and a full bed, just buy queen sheets for both. You might have to tuck the sheets in further and tighter and more often for the full, but they mix and match. That means when a set or two rip, it's no big deal. I have used king blankets and comforters on queens and full beds half my life. It works. Fun fact about that king comforter. It folds up to fit either a full or twin bed as a mattress pad just fine. And you can tuck it under queen bedding it, if needed as well most of the time. That means that as age starts wearing mattresses, we can extend their lives. It also means that should somebody be sick or potty training, we can throw some garbage bags between the mattress and the comforter and the bag won't shift as much and annoy the sleeper. Should somebody sneeze or giggle and dribble a little, we're washing and drying a big blanket and sheets, not trying to clean, then cover a mattress and inviting mold and mildew right into bed with us while it dries much slower. Clothing can also be simplified with some regularity. Shoes are pretty specific and socks need to fit uh, well, although with kids we can skip sizes and plan for two to three pairs of socks. Most other clothing have some leeway. It will make sure that our drawstrings and belt loops we can tighten, add suspenders, pinups, and roll clothing. Also, a hair elastic makes a hand sleeve garter for washing hands and dishes or any other time rolled up sleeves might try to unroll or slide down. As somebody who now gets her nephew's hand-me-downs instead of using past things to them, I can tell you that some oversized clothing is hazardous because it will catch and snag, but a medium or large or an extra-to-extra-large sole can share a lot of outerwear if it's purchased in the larger sizes. Storage containers. As we start seriously accumulating things, we need somewhere to put it. Tip number one. Avoid the I'll sort it out later trap of a junk drawer, just shelf, miscellaneous box, and a catch-all laundry basket. If you truly go through weekly and put things in their place, that's cool. Most of us toss, say, toss, say we'll get to it later, don't, toss, repeat, toss, repeat, and 5-15 to 15 minute job of sorting turns into an hour plus that we can then really start dodging. 
There are lots of options for holding our goodies, any of which let us sort things as they come home. Laundry baskets of varying sizes are cheap and pretty durable. Lined with a sheet, towel, or garbage bag, the holes don't matter if at some point we need to. They allow us to reline or remove the liner and plant in them. They can be doubled up into fish traps or holders. Large baskets can be turned into cribs, lined, lined well, or puppy crates. We can use them harvesting larger produce and then we can sponge them with pine cleaner and turn them into something else all over again. Accounting or banker's file boxes with the separate lids aren't as durable as storage totes, but most of mine actually keep their lids better than the storage totes. They readily fit on shelves and they're a size that's reasonable to carry whether they're packed with papers, books, or oops, canned goods. They stack well and uniformly across manufacturers. It's easy to pop up a lid instead of retaping or doing the four corner tucks, which will also help us keep our storage supplies fairly neat. The downside of them, of course, is that they're not water or bug proof. We can line them with trash bags and or wet packs or supplies in gallons and two gallon ziplocs, but it still leaves the potential that at some point the cardboard will dissolve into sodden mess. Still, apples to apples with standard cardboard boxes, they hold their own. They're less expensive than most moving boxes, but if there's a liquor store, go with the free boxes where there's instead, those will be nice and sturdy too. Then there are things like kitty litter buckets we might get for free or buy instead of a smaller container of litter. Uh, there's a, a bike here. It looks like maybe like a, a bug out bike or whatever with uh, uh, kitty litter baskets tied into it. So a lot of room for storage. Uh, it's a neat little, neat little setup there. Uh, while not appropriate for everything, they too hold a ton of weight and multifunction when needed. Today, they might be canned goods, medical stuff, or actual litter for winter weight and traction. Tomorrow, they might be a water catchment system, a stacked vertical tower for the garden, or sub-irrigated gardening containers. Given another year, they might start holding a bulk seed or garden tool heads. Like the file boxes, square buckets have an advantage in being a nice standard size, which simplifies shelving and not wasting as much space as a rounded and deeply V'd storage tote or bucket would. Defunct coolers are another that can make for nice storage containers. The downside of those is the space lost to insulating, but wheels, sturdy handles, and a flip top lid can definitely be handy sometimes. Simplified shopping list. Hopefully these few examples were enough to start the brain churning for experienced preppers and beginners alike. From things like pasta that we can use to make a dozen different distinct dishes to having two firearm calibers from what we stock for cleaning to the lawn and garden supplies, there are millions of ways we can simplify our shopping and thus simplify our lives. Working off list of multiple use items can be an affordable way to get started or to fill in gaps we've started noticing after a trial run. In some cases, we can buy one thing and cross eight others off our list as a result. Other times, we might choose to hold off on some of the diversity we want to add. By simplifying lists, we can also eliminate a, list, a little of the pressure on our storage spaces and we may be able to identify and rectify gaps in our supply when we sit down to compare what we have to what we use normally. It might also let us make a switch in our daily life that will save money in the long run, opening up the budget for extra seeds. Seven dust, shoes, sugar, and storage racks. All right, so I definitely agree with the idea 
of using uh, using items and using them in multiple ways. And that's not just for supplies for your you know prepping for your home or whatever, but also when you're thinking about if you're making a kit or you're making a, an EDC kit or or a bag or anything like that. Uh, that's something that you want to consider. How can I use something in multiple different ways? And um, But at the same time, making sure that it's quality stuff. All right. Well, again, uh, I think this was a great episode. A lot of good stuff here. Um, I am, like I said, I'm going to be putting a lot of things in the show notes, uh, different links to, uh, you know, to Gay's site, to Georgia's site, uh, to their social media, and also to the free book, uh, you know, Strategic Living. Um, so I'm going to have that there so that you can go link to that. And so uh, a lot of good stuff, man. If you if you get a chance, drive by or drive by. Uh, if you get a chance, drop by Gay's or Georgia's website and, uh, you know, give them a thanks for, uh, you know, for the interview and also for, you know, letting us download that uh, that book for free. All right. So, again, thanks so much for listening and being part of the Prepper Website Podcast. I, I really do appreciate all the listeners out there. Um, every week I'm, I get more excited about you know, the listeners and, and the numbers, and, and that's just great. It's, it's a great blessing to me. So uh, with that, if you get a chance... Come by the website and drop a, drop me a line in the comment section. Uh, you know, hit me up on uh, Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. All right. So with that, um, again, we will be back tomorrow with more great articles to read. If you're looking for uh, other preparedness articles uh, in the meantime, you're looking for more preparedness contact content. Make sure that you hit prepperwebsite.com. All right. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.